arts education has been under fire from both the left and the right. In the name of righting historical wrongs, the left has deconstructed the classics with theories and critiques that seek to take dead white men down a few pegs and elevate the work of non-Westerners, women, and people of color, and also to advance the cause of justice. The attack on the liberal arts from the right is a kind of reverse image of that deployed by the left. For the right, higher education is, at best, viewed as irrelevant to the earning of a living, and at worst, an adversary of traditional American values. One need look no further than the recent angry and inflammatory debate on critical race theory to see both perspectives at work. They are twins grappling with one another. What the left and right share is a highly instrumental approach to education. Study is not for its own sake, but for some other purpose, either social reform on the left or preparation for finding a job on the right. In this episode of Hardly Working, we look at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, and Santa Fe, New Mexico. St. John's is one of only a few liberal arts institutions in the United States that focus on what are known as the great books, classic works from Aristotle and Plutarch to Shakespeare and Kant. Classes are taught seminar style with an emphasis on learning how to think and share thought with others. All students take the same classes and read the same books. There are no electives. In the college's library, the entire corpus that all students read is housed in a single, not very large room. The emphasis at St. John's is not how to engage in the world of business, but how to get on with the business of living. The outcomes of this kind of education can be surprising. It turns out the St. John's approach is remarkably good preparation for careers in fields like science, medical research, finance, and information technology. St. John's graduates have gone on to be editors of major publications, physicians, and investors. They've also started small businesses and managed major ones. But these careers are a byproduct of minds that are trained to think critically and clearly, rather than the goal of St. John's training per se. My conversation with St. John's president, Pano Canellos, was an exploration of this very old, but always surprisingly fresh approach to educating the human mind. Pano Canellos, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to have the chance to have a discussion. Well, thrill is all on our side. We've gotten to know each other a little bit over the last couple of years, and I've been tracking your progress closely at St. John's College. I think it's just a really wonderful opportunity for our listeners to find out what what the story is with St. John's and what your story is. So let's start there. Let's start with you just talking about your own life, the influences that brought you to where you are today, what kind of conclusions you've reached about what actually creates human happiness. I'm glad we're starting off with some very small and trivial questions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's jump in on the life piece, the, the origin story. You know, I am one of the least likely people to have ended up to be a college president. I wasn't even really supposed to go to college at all. In my family are Greek immigrants. I grew up in the back of a Greek diner. You know, neither of my parents were educated people. And nobody in my family had ever been to college at all. Any of my, I was the oldest in our immediate family, none of my cousins or anybody. So there wasn't really kind of evident pathways for me other than my peers who were going off to college. But I somehow stumbled my way into college. No, that's that's not good enough. You didn't stumble your way in. How did it actually happen? Where did you go? Where did you go to high school? Actually, the high school piece is important. You're you're right. 
I went to a Jesuit high school in Phoenix, Arizona called Brophy College Prep. It was a place where everybody was oriented towards college. So it was a fine education. It was really a fantastic education. And I would say, you know, one of the things that really propelled me forward, I had a couple of fantastic English teachers. I really developed a love for literature, kind of insatiable appetite for wanting to read more books. So stumbling into it isn't exactly the right way to put it. I was, I was, I certainly had some wind at my back, but very little direction. And I, I'll just share an anecdote to show you how naive I was. I went to Northwestern University in Chicago. My very first week of of being there, I was sitting in my dorm room with my new roommate, and we were just chatting. And he was a guy from Atlanta, Georgia. His name was Steve. Came from a family that owned hotels, so somebody who was pretty privileged. He looked at me, and he and I was a bit intimidated by him. And he looked at me and said, "Pano, so what? What are you going to major in?" I literally had no idea what he was talking about. I didn't know what major mm. meant. Mm. I just thought you went to college. I, you know, like mm. you went to high school. Mm. And so, mm. you know, this, of course, was before you could look things up on Google. So I started <laughs> asking people as quietly as possible, so what are you majoring? And it sort of dawned on me that, you know, oh, you pick something like a specialty and then, you know, you, you, you make your way forward. So, so there was a bit of stumbling there, but went to Northwestern, was an English major, creative writing as part of that, which is fantastic. Went on to Boston University. I did Teach for America, actually, after, immediately after college. Taught in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, the very bottom of Texas, towards the point on the border in a very interesting community there. And then I sort of went into graduate, a graduate program at Boston University called the University Professors Program, which is kind of interdisciplinary and in line with somebody like me who really was just using graduate school as a platform to read even more books. And they had this wonderful collection of really amazing, towering figures have only appreciated in retrospect. People in the program, faculty included Eli Wiesel, Derek Walcott, and two people who became very important in my life, the poet Jeffrey Hill and the philosopher Roger Scruton. These were people. So so a few kind of semi-well-known names in that in that constellation. Very good. Okay. A couple of small fries. No, and 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 you know, and you know, I sort of imbibed from them really how one could fully inhabit the life of the mind, like how important this stuff was. And again, I was at this point really doing things for my own edification. I was studying political philosophy primarily. I was writing a master's thesis on Hobbes. And then, you know, again, as with many things in my life, serendipity intervened. There was a the newest faculty member there who, again, one of these kind of minor figures was a guy named Saul Bellow. He and I ended up sitting next to each other during a luncheon one day. And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm writing a thesis on Hobbes. And he asked me some more questions about it. And then he said, what are you doing here? You should be at the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago. And, and you know, I'm thinking, my University of Chicago, I can't get in the University of Chicago. And then Stello uh, said, you know, how do you spell your last name? And he wrote my name. I shouldn't probably be saying this in a public forum, but, you know, hopefully nobody will hear this. He said, how do you spell <laughs> Oh, that's that? why we do it. So that nobody yeah, listens, right? Yeah. Yeah. He said, how do you spell <laughs> my last name? And I said, you know, I told him and he wrote it on the back of a napkin, took my number. And I thought, I wasn't sure what he was going to do. Two days later, I got a call from the Committee on Social Thought congratulating me on, on my acceptance <laughs> into the program, to which I had not replied. Again, we may have to strike this from the record. 
And that's what took me to my graduate program. I, I did my PhD in the Committee on Social Thought at the University of Chicago, ended up returning to my first love, which is literature, and writing my dissertation on Shakespeare. And then from there, did a postdoc at Stanford, and then on to teaching gigs at University of San Diego, Loyola in Chicago, moved on to be the Dean of the Honors College, a great books honors college at Valparaiso University called Christ College, wonderful program, great, great place. And then from there, St. John's made the totally irrational decision to hire me as president four years ago, and I've been here in Annapolis since. So that's the kind of career arc. And yeah, yeah. You know, along the way, I've, I've definitely been, you know, primarily, I would say my identity, my academic identity has been split between somebody who does Shakespeare, both theory and practice. I, I've written a lot on the literary side of Shakespeare, but also I've been involved with many productions. And then, you know, a kind of great books utility player. I've taught in many honors programs and other programs that have a kind of great books orientation, which is one of the things that led me to St. John's. And you asked for influences. I've mentioned a couple of them. Jeffrey Hill was very important to me, the poet. He's probably the most, the person with the greatest gravitas I've ever met in my life. Somebody who who was English literature. I mean, he just embodied it in a way that I found entirely compelling. I also met, as I said, Roger Scruton at, and at Boston University when I was there, and he what continued to be a major influence on my life and a great friend up until his passing recently. And then when I went on to my PhD program, another I seem to gravitate to poets. Another important influence on me was the poet Mark Strand, who was in the Committee on Social Thought. He and I became very close, and he really helped me to understand in reading Shakespeare, although you know he's not an early modernist, he's a contemporary poet, understanding how much weight one ought to put on words when and when reading even drama it was very important to me. And then I would say, you know, you asked about about a happy life. Well, let's pause there because that's yeah, a good sure, that's sure. a bridge to the rest of the conversation. Because I think that. I mean, the question that I wanted to pose to you is sort of what have you learned? I think I put it in the in our pre-interview questions. What have you learned about what makes a happy life? But I want to turn that around a little bit because you talked earlier in, in this conversation about you discovered the importance of the life of the mind. What's important about the life of the mind? First of all, what is the life of the mind? And then why is it important? Let's do it that way. Yeah, what is okay. the life of the mind? I would say life of the mind is a life that is purposefully self-reflective and that takes very seriously the self-reflection that others have engaged in. So usually through works of, through text and works of art and that. So, you know, that really, I mean, this goes back to, you know, the kind of Delphic injunction to know thyself. You know, I mean, this is, I think human beings are separate from the rest of creation, the rest of the material universe, in a sense that we can come to know ourselves. And therefore, because we can come to know ourselves, not entirely, I mean, we remain mysteries to ourselves as well, but because we can come to know things about ourselves, I feel like we have an ethical imperative to, to do that as vigorously as possible. So, you know, a life of the mind is not just about the interplay of ideas. It's not a game. It's about Asking the fundamental human questions and orienting ourselves around our search for those answers. And the life of the mind can happen 
it can take place in a very formal setting. You know, I've had the privilege to be in some of the finest institutions of learning in the world. And I've had the privilege to teach and be taught, to write and to read. All of that is life of the mind, but but I, I don't think it essentially has to be conducted in a formal setting. I think anybody who is thoughtful and attentive to the world and attentive to their own place in the world and who reads and who looks around them with curiosity in the world. I mean, I think all of that is life of the mind. It makes me think of friends that I've made who spent time in prison, actually, and who seem to, in that experience, stumble into the life of the mind. That isolation and that the suffering that goes along with it and the necessary reflection, it needs to happen. It doesn't happen often enough, I think, for any of us, but that's so important to this coming to know yourself, know thyself. So knowing yourself, as you've laid out, is really important. The other question was really about happiness. So how does knowing yourself lead to a happy life and not in the sense of, you know, sort of a hedonistic understanding of happiness, but happiness is maybe some of the people that that one studies at St. John's might think of happiness. Yeah, I mean, you know, I I think, I mean, when I think of happiness, I think of Aristotle, who, you know, defines happiness essentially as fulfilling one's purpose, right? So, you know, we're we're all imbued with a sort of potential. As we strive to reach that potential, we reach a state of happiness. It's not a euphoric state. It's a state of, I think, feeling fulfilled. And, you know, and again, I think this does circle around to the life of the mind. I mean, human beings are creatures of logos. We are creatures of language. Language allows us to perceive the world in very, very complex, nuanced, and sophisticated ways. And so, you know, as our perception of the world is amplified, enhanced, as we as we learn more about ourselves and the world around us, I think we feel like we're doing what human human beings have been engineered, designed, I don't know what the right word is, to do. And and I I think it is very, very gratifying. I mean, I think that's that is a version of happiness, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. It is hard to get around that idea of if you talk about purpose, you assume some sort of order in the universe that that lays out the idea of purpose. And it's pretty hard to work around that. So it's hard not to use words like design, like engineer, like there's a plan that is being fulfilled around us and that we have to sort of figure out what our part is in that design. I I was just going to say, I think I would approach it from the beginning rather than the end. So, you know, I don't think we ever reach a final telos where we've fulfilled our purpose. But I think we are, Aristotle talks about acorns and pine trees, right? So seeds, acorns have within them the material to become something greater than they are when, you know, in their kind of natal state and they they grow into their fullness. And so I would, maybe that's how I describe it, growing into one's fullness Mm. as a kind of happiness. That's terrific. Okay, so let's switch over a little bit. And I want you to talk to us about St. John's College 
and give us its origin story and it's what it was designed to do. And then how does it go about achieving its purpose? Sure. So St. John's actually has, I think, two origin stories. I mean, there's sort of two St. John's. There's the the one that spans most of the history of the college and then one that started more recently. The college was originally founded in 1696. So it's the third oldest college in the country after Harvard and William and Mary. And it was founded as a kind of conventional colonial liberal arts institution, first called the King William School. But as you might imagine, towards the end of the 18th century, naming things after British monarchs was less popular than it had originally been. So the name was changed to St. John's. And so for most of the college's history, it's been, you know, one among many of, you know, the sort of archetypal East Coast traditional liberal arts institutions. But in the early 20th century, the college took a turn. In 1937, the college had been on financial rocks at many points throughout its history. I mean, most colleges can say that. And there was sort of an existential crisis in the 1930s between the wars. And the originators of what we now call the new program of instruction were two fellows named Scott Buchanan and Stringfellow Barr. And they decided that it would be revolutionary to move from what had been a relatively conventional program of study that you would find at almost any college to a program that exclusively focused on about 200 of the great books of the Western tradition, studied by all the students collectively in the same order over a period of four years. And so at that time, the new program began, and it was mapped out, kind of the study of from the ancient world to the modern world, kind of integrated program of literature, philosophy, math, science, music, languages, and very ambitious. And it was inaugurated, as I said, 1937. It was seen, I mean, at that time, there was a general movement towards great books. You know, that's when the word great, the term great books was first employed. Mortimer Adler and others inaugurated this kind of, you know, this, this movement that was meant to democratize elite education. The idea was that the authors that have formed the canon of the Western tradition should not be the exclusive province of families who could send off young sons to elite prep schools, but that they should be the inheritance of everybody. So what if we created this, this curriculum and made it available to everybody, no matter what the back, one's background was, one's circumstances? So that's what, you know, what transpired in 1937, is sort of the second founding. And you know, for 80 years, we have been conducting what we call the new program. I guess after 80 years, we might, might call it the middle-aged program or something. And it's yeah. roughly the same. It's, you know, every student comes in, there are no majors. Everybody follows the same course of study. The books, there is some change over time of the books. Some books make their way onto the program, some are taken off, but it's, I would say, glacial in terms of change. It's an extraordinary journey. And one of the things that's extraordinary about it is that everybody, every student who undertakes it is part of a common intellectual experience. So all the students share in the same material, same discussions, same sequence of study. What's even more extraordinary about it is that our faculty, we call tutors, not professors, who come to us with PhDs from 
all different backgrounds, everything from biochem to classics to music to philosophy, literature, I mean, all different backgrounds, they all have to teach all the texts on the program over the course of their career. So they will have to come in and teach ancient Greek, advanced physics, choral music. You know, they'll be doing French, you know, 17th century drama. I mean, they'll teach everything. And so they, over the course of their teaching career, exemplify the comprehensive approach to the program that we want our students to undertake. So it's really, it's really kind of extraordinary, unlike anything you'd find anywhere else. When I think about colleges and universities, other than St. John's, you talked about your own experience of getting a major and specializing in something with the idea that you're going to come out the other end as someone who is either equipped to do something or is has achieved some sort of level of expertise or f- at least familiarity with a body of knowledge that's pretty narrowly prescribed and that and then you're off you're off to trying to fit yourself into the world the workforce and so on what's the product do you think the student product for young people graduating from St. John's since they're not getting they're not being equipped for a technical field they're not being equipped for you know as experts in history or philosophy or you know some subject matter what's the product what's the science product i guess i would put it like this so that i think st john's is the sort of paradigmatic liberal arts education and one of the things i always say is there's no such thing as a liberal art there are only liberal arts so to be educated in liberal arts means you have to be educated comprehensively across disciplines so that the education is comprised of the humanities and the sciences, the arts of language, which people in the Middle Ages characterize as the trivium, and the arts of numbers, which was characterized as the quadrivium, the qualitative forms of knowledge and the quantitative forms of knowledge, such that, you know, in studying mathematics, in studying music, studying ancient languages, modern languages, you come to understand the world and the human condition through a kind of prism, through different lenses, different angles, all kind of aiming at the same thing, which is self-understanding, but coming at it from different angles. And what you find is those things start to cross over and converge. I'll give an example. We study biology and natural, the natural sciences extensively. The very first thing we have our students do when they begin their study of the natural world of biology is, you know, we don't open a textbook. You know, there's no sort of quiz about anatomy or anything like that. We send them outside. We have these, it happens to be a time of year where the wonderful magnolia trees we have on campus are in blossom. And we have them each sit apart from each other with a sketchbook and draw the magnolia focus on on the plant on the living organism and they have to do it for like an hour they can't they can't and and what what they learn is through intensive observation of a natural organism they start to ask questions why is it shaped this way what is what about its coloration what about the different textures on its surface what about the the magnolia's position relative to the rest of the natural world around it and a whole series of questions arises from that. So they return to the classroom and they start sharing the questions that they have and start thinking about those questions. 
Well, what they're essentially doing is going back to what natural philosophers has always done, observe, ask questions, and then try to figure out how to figure out the answers. So we don't begin with the answers, right, which we get in a textbook. We begin with the process of questioning and then the process of trying to teach oneself how to answer the question. That's what you get from a St. John's education, an intense habits that ask fundamental questions about the world, and then the ability to find a way to answer those questions, to use one's own native resources, one's own intellect to answer questions and solve problems. I can't imagine that there's any employer out there in the world that doesn't want a person who has been trained to identify problems and use their own resources to solve those problems. All right. And so I actually think when you study things within the disciplines, it can be debilitating over time because what you do is you learn from other people the way your discipline operates and what other people have discerned about it prior to your arrival. And you just sort of accept that. You know, I always say that a liberal arts education is not about the transfer of information, but about transformation. And so what we're doing at St. John's is we are transforming young people, mostly young people. Some had a 65-year-old freshman recently, so mostly young people. And we're transforming them into seekers of knowledge with the capacity to find the thing they're looking for. So I've spent some time on campus. I spent time with you and your faculty. And one question that's always come to mind as I've interacted with people who have either been through St. John's or are helping to facilitate learning at at St. John's, people who lead St. John's, is that they do seem to have this, a predisposition toward stepping back and trying to look at questions and problems and the material they're studying in some sort of context. One of the things that I've been thinking about is Is that something St. John's teaches people to do, or is that something, does it draw people who are already predisposed to that kind of learning and that kind of an approach to life? I think it's a both and. I mean, I think unless you didn't bother to really look at our curriculum at all and you just pick St. John's because the campus was pretty, which I don't think happens very often, you know, you understand that you are embarking upon an education that's unconventional and that is book-centered. And so we tend to draw students who have a natural inclination to seek out books. I mean, that's just, you know, that's, I mean, that's just who they are. They, that's where they look. Now, in terms of stepping back and, and, and pausing and thinking about questions, I mean, that, those are habits that we purposefully form here. So, I mean, I think the example of the Magnolia, trying to Magnolia is an example of that. Customarily, the way our classes begin, and you'll know that's from visiting, is with what we call an opening question. So the students will do the reading, prepare for class, come in, and it's usually the tutor, but sometimes the student who's tasked with an opening question, and they'll just pose a question that comes out of the reading. Sometimes it's a simple question, sometimes it's complex, sometimes it's nuanced, but it could be something like, you know, we just finished reading the middle section of Machiavelli's Prince. Machiavelli suggests that the ends justify the means. Is he right? And then, you know, what often happens in class then is 
this was very disconcerting to me when I first came here. And the first time I was in classes, there's often a period of silence. When I was sitting in on classes, the first one that I sat in on, I was uncomfortable with this because I thought it was a science class. Yeah, I think it was a lab. The tutor opened the question and then he just sat back and sat there and it was silent for minutes and they don't have anything to say because they didn't do the reading, which is not unusual for college students not to have the reading. And then it slowly developed into a conversation that had some real momentum in it as students would offer ideas and thoughts and be challenged in those thoughts and ideas, or someone would add on to that idea. And pretty soon they were at the chalkboard drawing, trying to draw what they were thinking rather than just using words because the words were not adequate to what they were trying to describe. They needed, they needed a picture in order to describe it. It was really fascinating, but that that opening question, you have to be comfortable with silence in order to, I think, to thrive at St. John's. Yeah, your description is exactly my experience at the college. That there are sometimes these prolonged silences. And you're right, in under any other circumstances, you would think, you know, the students were unprepared, but what they're doing is processing. One of the greatest sins at St. John's is to speak in a less than thoughtful way to just speak to be heard. So, you know, what they're doing is they're trying to formulate a response. And most of them are not eager to be the first one to speak because what they really want to do is hear what other people have to say. They want to listen and then respond to that. So, you know, there's in most environments, we usually have a kind of jockeying for position to be the first one heard, the loudest voice, the one who's right. And yet at St. John's, we are we cultivate a kind of habit of attentive quiet. And it's so disconcerting. The first couple of times I encountered it, I was like, felt like I was at a Quaker meeting or something. And, you know, I look, I grew up in a Greek family. I don't think I ever experienced more than two. Why it wasn't part of that, I yeah. Like, oh, there's there no <laughs> silence in my family. And it's very hard when you're teaching to do that because your your insecurity starts to kick in and you start to wonder what's happening. But after a while, you learn the culture here and you learn that it's just, it's not a bug, it's a feature in the system. That really struck me. And I wrote about this in the piece that I wrote after I spent a few days with you all. You know, we have such a performative educational culture of people needing to be right and to gain the approbation of the authority figure in the classroom. And you're pushing against at St. John's, I think you're pushing against a deeply entrenched culture. How do students, I mean, do they, how long does it take them to get into a rhythm? That's a good question. I mean, it obviously varies student to student. I would just say that, you know, you you will notice a significant difference in the conversation between freshmen and sophomores. So, you know, that, I don't know that it takes all of freshman year, but by sophomore year, it's just, it's almost like, you know, you're at a different institution. Freshman year, you know, they tend to be eager and they tend to have, bring with them the habits that they've acquired elsewhere, the ones you described. It takes, you know, kind of going back to knowing ourselves, to be able to be quiet takes a degree of self-confidence, right? I mean, why do we speak out and try to receive the, the approval of our authority figures? It's because we're, we need assurance 
that we're okay, that we're not dumb, that we're smart. And I certainly need that. I need it all the time. And so to to reach a level of maturity where you're not seeking that. Now, again, I don't think all students achieve that at the same pace. I don't even know that all members of the faculty achieve that consistently or all the time. And what we're talking really is about a kind of ideal here at St. John's that we'd all behave this way all the time. It doesn't always happen, but it happens more often than not. So students come to St. John's and they spend four years reading, thinking, conversing around this shared curriculum, body of knowledge, and you're coming up on graduation. So you're about to push out another cohort of students who are going out into the world. Where do they wind up after they leave St. John's? It's surprising. And it's surprising to me that since I've been here to to track where students end up, you find them in practically every field and every place. The general trends, I mean, I would say a significant number of them do end up doing further, doing graduate study. So going on a graduate study, maybe, maybe a third within the first five years. But Many of them are going, they're not all going to become PhDs in philosophy. Many of them are going into the sciences, a significant number go into tech, a significant number go into medicine, some into business. They go in every direction. A lot of our students go into education in one form or another, not surprisingly. But then we have these sort of clusters of students in very unexpected places. I mean, the most famous winemaker in Napa Valley is a graduate of St. John's College. And he, since starting out there, Warren Vinyarski's name started out there in the 70s with Stag's Leap. He founded Stag's Leap Winery. There's been a kind of migration of Johnny's out to Napa Valley, such that, you know, people joke out there that, you know, the two most important schools for winemakers are UC Davis and St. John's College. And I don't think they're wrong. A significant number of our graduates have ended up in diplomatic service. So they go in every direction. There aren't too many significant patterns, I would say. But what most of them are looking for are things where, I would say, careers where learning can continue to happen. I would say that's a trend that I see where, you know, your sort of entry-level position is offering you new vistas of learning, whatever that might be. I remember having a conversation with your career counseling office. I asked the director, who I think has been there for about 10 years or so, you know, what what was the most surprising thing to her about what happens with Johnny's when they graduate? And she said, she actually didn't take a long time to reflect on this. She just said, it's the number of kids that go into the sciences and particularly into IT out of St. John's, which is, let's just reflect on that for a second, because that's counterintuitive to what one would expect from a career choice from somebody who's been studying the great books. And we we sort of went into that. And she said, well, they're not becoming coders. You know, they're not writing programs. They're going into systems architecture, designing solutions to problems, end-to-end perspective. Where are we? Where are we trying to get to? And then, you know, what would the elegant, wonderful solution be to this challenge? And I just think that that, to me, that really stuck out the relevance to the market of this kind of education can be profound. A lot of people are going to be academics, go on to teach others this way of being and thinking. But some of them, you know, are going to be doing very practical kinds of work as well, making wine. It's an important 
service to provide to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny. I'll share a quick anecdote along these lines. I've shared this in other contexts, but it's one of my favorite St. John's experiences. This must have been fall. It was before COVID. So I'm fall 2019. Is that when? And anyway, the academic year before COVID hit. And I was walking across campus the very first week of classes. And I see this young man who is trying to get into his dormitory. He has like the key card. It's not working. Something's off. I don't recognize him. So I assume that he is a new student, a freshman. Since we're a small campus, I tend to know most of the students. I walk up to him, introduce myself, ask if he needs help, help him out. And then, and then I asked him, I said, you know, tell me about yourself. You know, we've never met before. You know, where are you coming from? How did you end up at St. John's? I always like to find out the pathways they take. And he told me he had been born in Romania and raised in Romania, but his family were immigrants from China. So he spoke Romanian, German, Mandarin, English. Somehow through a friend of a friend, he had heard about St. John's and decided to come join us here in Annapolis. And I said, that's really interesting. I said, but, but why, why St. John's? And he said, wow, I want to be a computer program. And I thought, oh, geez, I like, this is the kid who didn't read the, the didn't read the <laughs> website. He didn't look at the program. He thinks we have degrees in computer science or something. And, you know, the poor kids come here all the way from Romania and he's going to be so disappointed. He hasn't any classes yet. You know, I'm like, I better tell him right now. And just let's just rip off the bandaid. And I said, you know, his name was Chen. I said, Chen, you know, we don't offer degrees in computer science. And he said, no, no, no. I know that. He said, he goes, I want, he, he didn't want to write computer code. He goes, I want to, I want to write computer code. He says, but I've realized that we don't write code for machines. We write code for human beings. And so I want to learn what it means to be a human being before I go on and study computer science. So that's, that's awesome. why I'm at St. John's. Yeah. Okay. There are a couple other questions I want to get to. I want you to talk about what's next for you because I think it's really an interesting venture. But before we do that, I want to ask you about the sort of the pushback that we've seen against college bachelor level study and education over the last several years, you know, where it's been, you don't need these degrees, you know, you just, we need, we don't need more philosophers. We need you know, plumbers, we need electricians, we need welders, we need people to work with robots and factories to build things. And how do you react when you hear, obviously, God, you're leading a college where, you know, you're, you're doing the opposite. But what's your, what's your reflective answer to that concern? I think there's sort of maybe two things that kind of prompt the questioning of the value of a four-year college degree. The first is if you if you treat higher education simply as something instrumental, so simply as a kind of a pathway to a job, and that's the kind of totality of one's expectation, so that there's nothing added other than skills relevant to employment, it makes a heck of a lot of sense to try and find an end around a four-year education. It's expensive. It's time-consuming. If there are other pathways to employment, maybe pathways that are faster or more efficacious. Why not? Why not have those pathways? And why not seek them? So I think that's one one of the areas where we see some kind of resistance to the kind of conventional four-year degree. The other is, is a fault of the system itself of higher education. I mean, 
four-year degrees have essentially come to be what I call 120 credit delivery systems, right? So the whole point is you're kind of racking up this abstract thing called college credit that's attached to an assortment of classes that mostly don't add up together to anything in particular that are, you know, at least half of the credits most students take are sort of general electives that are disconnected from another, one another, general education requirements, one-off classes, things are done buffet style. And even within majors, sometimes the pathways aren't very clear. And so the kind of disconnectedness of higher education, the fact that it's not usually these days holistic in its approach, where you know things are interlinked, where there's a kind of sequence of coursework that is cumulative, adding up to something greater than the sum of its parts. I think that's very frustrating to a lot of students. I think a lot of students feel like they're spinning their wheels, taking classes that are just checking boxes. And, you know, while those individual classes may have value in and of themselves, they're often taught by very talented and earnest professors, you know, everything's disaggregated. And so I think that also causes people to question the expense and the value of four-year education. I would say that I, I think four-year education should be questioned. I don't really understand why college is four years, to be honest with you. It's a convention. Think of it this way. We look at graduate programs that are perfectly comfortable with graduate programs having different lengths. You know, you do three years for a law degree, but eight years for a medical you know, specialty, one year or two years for an MBA. Each of those programs, the length of those programs is dictated by the course of study and what it is that one needs to encounter. Why is every bachelor's degree essentially the same shape and size? I don't, I don't know. Do you think there isn't an answer to that question? How did it, how did it evolve into a four-year? I mean, I don't know the answer to how it evolved. I, I think it is a convention here roughly mirroring the four-year convention of the high school years. Hmm. And I mean, we know, you know, almost every country in Europe has a three-year bachelor's degree. I mean, that's the convention there. So there's, you know, nothing sacrosanct about the length of time relative to the degree that's attained. I will say, I think the major difference between European higher education and American is that European higher education doesn't have a kind of general education component. The idea is that you come to college and you've already made some choices about your, your particular course of study. And what we think of general education is handled before one comes to college, before one comes to a four-year or three-year institution. You know, we have this kind of more elastic sense of college. You kind of show up, you <laughs> hang out, you know, you, you explore, you figure out what a major means, you know, and then you kind of hone in on what you're going to do. It's very expensive to do that. It's very expensive. I mean, if we were to shorten the, our bachelor's degrees by a single year, so if we made three years the standard, we would lower the cost of higher education by at least 50%. All right, 25% of that would just simply be the cost of that fourth year tuition and otherwise. And then the opportunity cost in there of, of not being employed that year would be added back into the cost of education. We would, I mean, we would solve the financial crisis of higher education in one fell swoop if we could convince our accreditors, the whole system, to certify three year college degrees, unless they're justified. I mean, there are programs 
for example, engineering or maybe nursing, where four years is really critical. I think four years at St. John's is critical. Like, I mean, we have we use every every segment of that time very purposefully. But you know, it's, I think it's something to take seriously. Okay, so that's a good transition. You've been at St. John's for four years, and you've done some really remarkable things at St. John's, and we will include some of that story about those changes that you've brought, particularly around the tuition issue, to include those in the show notes on on the show. But you're moving on. I'd like to know where you're going and what you're doing, and what's the telos here? What are you trying to create? So I'm going to be a bit cryptic because we're, we haven't sort of publicly announced the details of the project yet, but I'll, I'll share some things in outline. I've been asked to found a new university, and that will be near Austin, Texas. And the the reason for for this institution to be founded is to solve some of the problems we've been talking about, to think about the questions of the right scope of higher education, how one combines all the the benefits of a liberal arts education, all the blessings of a liberal arts education with an eye towards professional life in the modern world. And also to, I mean, I'll show my cards here, to try and move us back towards the center in higher education where we recommit to principles of freedom of inquiry, freedom of expression, and freedom of conscience to create an institution that is models those critical freedoms as best as we can. Well, Hanno, thank you so much. And not just for this interview, but just, first of all, for being a friend to me in the last couple of years. It's been great. And I'm grateful for your time this afternoon. Well, thank you, Brent. I'm grateful as well for the, for the friendship we've had and for your interest, your intensive interest in St. John's and the kind of liberal arts education that's offered here. And you know, the, the writing you've done on, on the school, helping to translate what we do here into to those who are unfamiliar with what we do at, at the college and, and the thinking that you've kind of compelled me to do about St. John's and its place in contemporary society has been extremely helpful. And I'm very grateful for that. And I'm really excited to circle back around a year yeah. <laughs> and have the next conversation. I think it's yeah. going to be really, really fun. Great. Well, Pano, thanks again. We'll catch up with you soon. Thank you. All the best. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.